Let's pray. God, we pray that you would be exalted and honored tonight as we open up your word. We pray that you would uh, speak to us as individuals and speak to us as a group. Help us to really draw, draw near to your presence and just receive what you want to say to us tonight. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you're not super familiar with Wednesday nights, what we do is uh, basically as a church, we're trying to read through the Bible in the year. So we've got uh, reading plans on the back table. If you don't have one, help yourself to one. But uh, basically what we're doing on Wednesday nights is taking a portion out of what we've read over the last week and just trying to go a little bit deeper. Um, So really Wednesday nights we're going through the Bible in a year. Sunday mornings we're going through the Bible in a few years. Um, but so it's kind of, it's, you know, it is what it is. But anyway, so this week took us from Ezekiel uh, 37, I believe it was, through Daniel chapter 8. And um, as the guy who has to stand up and teach from a section out of that, it's really kind of a weird chunk to, to sort out because um, there's a couple of the most profound prophecies in the Bible found in that chunk. Um, Ezekiel 38 talks about an event yet to come when Russia and Iran and Turkey um, with a couple other nations are going to launch a surprise invasion against Israel and Syria's out of the picture and Iraq's out of the picture and Saudi Arabia isn't fighting against Israel but they're not fighting for Israel and it's pretty interesting because geopolitically we're at the first time in world history where the stage is set for that prophecy to potentially be fulfilled. Um, Daniel is... Um, just another amazing book of the Bible. Daniel's a fascinating book because it contains just intense applications, but also contains some of the most radical prophecies uh, in all of Scripture. Daniel prophesied to the day when Jesus Christ would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there are mathematicians and historians who have calculated out that it was, in fact, to the day from when Daniel said, uh, you can start the clock on this day, and 483 years later, the print Messiah will come. And 483 years later, if you calculate leap years and leap months, because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, if you do all the math, and you, you know, it's, it's complex. But if you do it all, to the day, Jesus Christ rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, so that's coming, I think that's in tomorrow's reading. Uh, Daniel contains intense prophecies about what's going to happen at the end of time, at the end of the age, at the end of, um, really as the world comes to an end as we know it. And so... But it's also an intensely practical book because we get intense testimonies, right? And so the challenge in some ways with Daniel is that Daniel is so relevant that it would be really easy to stand up here and give a topical teaching. On, because I could pull a topic uh, out of Daniel incredibly easy. You could read the book of Daniel in our world today and you could do a whole teaching on vaccine mandates. You could do a whole teaching on church restrictions. You could do a whole teaching on where the Roman Catholic Church fits into end times prophecy. Um, I'm not making that up. You could. Um, you could do a lot of teachings on a lot of interesting and very worthwhile stuff, honestly. Um, but as we're trying to look overall at, at a big picture, right, we want to say what is God saying to us through his word? And... Um, you know, specifically in a church context, we want to say, what is God saying to us overall, right? God wants to speak to us as individuals, absolutely. Um, but as part of that, that's why we have a responsibility to listen to God as individuals, right? Uh, when we come together corporately, it's a little more of a, you know, a group 
as, as a group, we're collectively saying, God, what do you want to say to us? How can we grow together? And so tonight, if you have a Bible with you, and you wouldn't mind turning to Daniel chapter 3. Um, Daniel as a whole is really the story of how we should live while we are in Babylon. And we talked about this idea a couple weeks ago that um, the Bible gives us a lot of pictures and types, and it gives us symbols, right? It gives us literal history, but along the way it oftentimes gives us these symbols that we can look at and glean some application from. And so uh, one of the ones that we'll talk about a lot is that, you know, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, uh, in a lot of ways that's symbolic of us through Jesus Christ getting to enter into a victorious life in Christ. And even you can go further and say, you know, Joshua led them through the Jordan into the promised land. And, and symbolically, water is very oftentimes representative or a type of the Holy Spirit. So you can kind of say Joshua is a little bit of a picture of Jesus Christ. The Jordan River is a little bit of a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so we, through the salvation of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, can enter into victory in life. And so it's a type right? It's not, it's not a direct application. It's, you know, if you wanted to make it an absolute metaphor, uh, it's not, right? But it's a type. It's a picture. It's an area where, where we can glean. And we've talked about that as we look at the history of the nation of Israel, uh, specifically the nation split into two parts. We call them the nation of Israel up in the north and the nation of Judah down in the south. The nation of Judah in particular uh, was a very, became a very sinful nation, and the Lord dealt with them, and the Lord judged them and they wound up going into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And in some ways, it's a type of our life here on earth because we've sinned and our sins have landed us in a cursed world. And uh, we live with the, the effects of that. But simultaneously, as these people are getting taken away captive to Babylon, the Lord is saying, hey, Babylon is not, it is, there's some, it's a consequence, right? And we all live, we are not in the Garden of Eden as a consequence of our sins. But the Lord says, hey, while you're in Babylon, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to influence where you're going. I want you to be a blessing to the people you're around. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And so there's still realities of consequences. It's still a cause and effect universe, but the promises of God are still there in Babylon. And so for us, as we're looking at the story of Israel in captivity or the nation of Judah in captivity, okay, we're kind of in some ways looking at a type of what our lives can be, okay? And again, we said this isn't, you know, at this point we're not talking about a straight, you know, line-by-line line reading of our life, but we are looking at, sometimes the Lord will show us a picture and say, hey, this is what things could be. Or, hey, this is what things could be. You know, we're always given a path. And we can go to the left or go to the right, but the Lord will very often give us a bit of a foreshadowing. He might not spell everything out, but he'll say, you know, if you take this way, you are going to invite the blessings of God into your life. If you do go this way, you are going to invite the consequences. You're going to invite the judgment of God. And it's not to turn Christianity into a health and wealth doctrine, but it's to say there are paths we can take that will invite the blessings of God, right? Obedience invites the blessing of God. And so that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, but a little bit big picture, the book of Daniel uh, focuses in specifically on a man named Daniel and his three friends. And... Um, most people know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their Babylonian names. But they were basically, they were taken captive in the nation of Judah, and they were carried away to Babylon. And it's a really fascinating study because they weren't tortured into becoming Babylonians. The Babylonians didn't have this hard sell. They just made it easy for them to be Babylonians. 
right? They said, we're just going to educate you in our system. We're going to instruct you in our religion. We're going to name you with our names. We're just going to make it just kind of an assimilation process, and it'll be very natural for you to just forget all about ever being Jewish. But Daniel and his three friends don't. And we get this, this fantastic picture of four guys who refuse to let their circumstances dictate their faithfulness, right? And so as we're looking and kind of saying, okay, what is, you know, we're trying to glean something out of Daniel, right? Well, it's very important to understand, first and foremost, that Daniel and his three friends are in circumstances they did not ask for. Um, In some ways, they probably didn't even deserve necessarily these guys were faithful to the Lord. They're caught up in the consequences of what their nation has done. Okay, but their circumstances don't dictate their faithfulness. And so really the first six or seven chapters in particular, uh, first, yeah, six or seven chapters in particular really emphasize this point in the book of Daniel. Um, but tonight, for the sake of just a bit of, a, of an overall picture, we're going to try and zero in on chapter three. Okay, so if you're there, I gave you guys plenty of time to get there, I think. Um, but anyways, if you're there, Daniel chapter three. We're going to start off. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, that's the king of Babylon, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and all these guys... um, They were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, and all the other instruments, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But... Whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and all the other kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So, um, we launch into chapter 3 for the sake of time, but it's important to understand chapter 2 This king, Nebuchadnezzar, was given a vision by God of a statue. The statue was made of gold at the head. It was silver in the chest. It was, I forget what goes from there, I think bronze and then iron and clay. And the Lord gives this vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel interprets it to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, okay, here's the deal. Uh, Your kingdom is great. It's like gold. It's awesome. But after it comes another kingdom, and it's going to be like silver. It won't be as rich, but it'll be a little stronger. After that, it's going to come another kingdom. It's going to be like bronze. It won't be as rich, but it'll be a little bit stronger. And, and he's given this progression of what's going to happen after the time of the nation of Babylon. And so we open up with chapter 3, and you've got a world leader who builds a statue that's all gold. Right? Nebuchadnezzar is defying God. He's saying, no, 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 no. I set the terms here. I'm building an empire. Right? And, and, we, and you see this throughout history. Right? Adolf Hitler set up what was going to be a 1,000-year dynasty. That was what the Third Reich was supposed to be in his mind. Um, He was off, thank God, right? But men throughout history have always tried to establish themselves above the will of God. And we find ourselves, and again, you know, we're going to try tonight to not go off on these random tangents. I'm really reining myself in. You guys all know that. But um, 
We're going to try and not go off on all these random tangents, okay? But we're in a world where there are men who elevate themselves above the Word of God, right? There are people in our world who say, I do not care what God says, right? It does not matter if God has set standards of morality. It does not matter if God has set standards of absolutes, of right and wrong, of integrity, of moral authority. It doesn't matter. I'm beyond that. I'm above that. I'm past that, right? We live in a world where leaders say that. And so we're finding ourselves, as we're looking at Daniel and his three friends, we're starting to see some parallels. We're starting to see some areas where we can glean a little bit of application, okay? And then this king, with all of his, you know, niceness and graciousness, says, guys, here's, here's how it works. It's very simple. The music plays, you fall down and worship. So straightforward. Just in case anybody missed the memo, if you don't fall down and worship, you die. Okay, let's just make sure, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was into, like, bullet points and clear communication, right? Hear the music, bow down, or else die. It's really simple. It's straightforward. He just gives it to him. All right? But remember, we talked about Daniel and his three friends are in a culture that's trying to make it easy for them to forget that they're Jewish. Easy for them to forget that they're children of God, right? And it's just assimilation process. But Daniel and his three friends have this really interesting thing. They live life like God is real. They live life like there's a real God who has really spoken to them through his word and like it really matters. And so that impacts their decisions and their actions. All right, so in verse 8, it says, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, Chaldeans is another word for Babylonians, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, The king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and all the other music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, and all the other instruments to fall down and worship the image I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So, okay, so first of all, Daniel's not mentioned. Um, that's not, that shouldn't lead you to think that Daniel's compromising here because we have pictures of Daniel before and after living a life of no compromise. So Daniel was in a slightly different government position than these guys. So more than likely, Daniel's out on a king's business trip, more or less, okay? Um, but so the king, so somebody comes and tells the, the king, hey, these guys, they're not bowing down. We just thought you might want to know, right? And people are, there's, you know, I mean, that's the story of the world, right? There's always that guy who's just happy to let the boss know that somebody's just kind of standing up for Christian morality, just in case that matters, right? But these three dudes, what do they do? They didn't compromise, right? The king said, fall down and worship. They could have like, you know, fallen down and like sung happy birthday in their head. They could have fallen down and counted to 10. They could have fallen down and prayed to God, right? 
I mean, have you ever, like, have you ever been at a table full of non-believers having lunch? And there's, you know, there's the one guy who says, excuse me, and he bows his head, and he prays, and it's a little awkward, right? Have you ever just, like, sat there and prayed with your eyes open? You know, like, dear God, bless the food, amen, right? And then just started eating, right? Because sometimes it's a little easier to just be like, let's just be chill, let's roll with this, let's not make waves, right? These guys weren't interested in quasi-acclimating to a culture that was trying to make them forget who they were or make them forget who the Lord was. These guys were not interested in giving the impression that they were okay with that, right? Now, here's an important point that I want us to also note. These guys have established themselves with a reputation such that they've earned favor with the king. And this is important because, again, we're, talking, we're looking for parallels, looking for application in our lives, right? So these guys are refusing to take a... To, they're refusing to compromise. But along the way, these guys have set themselves apart as so resourceful, so full of integrity, so diligent, and so hardworking that the king says, there's got to be a mistake here somewhere. So the king calls him. And he says, guys, obviously, either you missed the memo, or your knees were stiff, or something went wrong, so we're just going to do this all over again. Right? This is a pagan king who, as you read in the book of Daniel, is not exactly well known for patience. Right? This guy is famous for losing his temper. Right? and going ballistic. So he's not like famous for being Mr. Nice Guy of the Year, all right? But he says, your guys' performance has set you apart to the point that I am sure there's a misunderstanding, right? So what happened? So these guys, you know, there's, we don't see these guys, you know, going up to Nebuchadnezzar saying, dude, you know, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, Sir King, you have got a sin problem. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins and believe in the Lord. Right? And we talked about this, whatever it was, two weeks ago. You know, that idea of taking opportunities to share the gospel and, and responding to those moments that the Lord gives us. And sometimes there is that moment where we stand and pose a direct, uh, a direct challenge to somebody. Are you standing on the truth or not? Right? But oftentimes, uh, um, if our conduct sets us apart from the world because our beliefs set us apart from the world— a lot of times the world will open those opportunities for us. And so sometimes we can, be all, we can work ourselves into a sweat over, you know, how am I going to share the gospel? And, and is this, you know, is this, oh my gosh, if I don't, does that make me morally responsible if they don't accept the gospel before they die and all that? But, and I'm not taking away from that, right? It's a balance. We talked about this two weeks ago. But in the same vein, if we live like God is real, it's going to impact the way we live. And very often, that will cause people to notice a difference. And so the King Nebuchadnezzar here notices a difference. But he doesn't notice a difference in a way that makes him say, you know, I just got to follow your God. Your God is just so awesome and spectacular. He says, no, no, no. Obviously, there's been a misunderstanding. So we're just going to do this over again. Because I'm still God. I'm still in charge of your guys' destinies, just in case there's any confusion. So we're going to do this one more time. And if you don't, just bear in mind that there is no God who can deliver you from my hands, right? He said, let the record state, right? And, and, and so, you know, biblically, it's just, it happens over and over again in the text of Scripture, right? He's not threatening them. He's not daring them at this point. He just made a switch, and he may or may not have even realized it. But all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar just dared God to defend himself. And don't ever dare God to defend himself, because 
God likes to defend himself. And God is very good at it and very capable. Right? The Assyrians said, your God is not capable of defeating us. And so the Lord didn't bother going down himself. The Lord sent an angel. Right? Angel number 32 or whatever it was. And that angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in the middle of the night. Nebuchadnezzar just dared the Lord to defend these three guys, right? But as we're looking at their lives, we're trying to glean parallels. We're trying to learn and see what we can do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 17. They replied, uh, verse 16, sorry. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the king says, tell you what, guys, I'm going to give you a second chance. They say, sir, you don't even have to. We can just set the record straight right here. We're not going to bow. And in case you're wondering, since you seem to have some confusion on the subject and you open the door, we're going to take this opportunity to tell you that, in fact, our God is fully capable of delivering us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to force his hand. We're not going to dare God to do something because he's God. We're going to let him do things his way. Even if he doesn't deliver us, that does not dictate our response. Our circumstances will not impact our faithfulness. That's what these guys are saying to the king. And, and this is where, like, if we want an application, right, in the midst of a world that's going ballistic, which our world is, our, our world is losing its mind, right, uh, on an accelerated rate. It's, it's picking up every week. Um, but if we're going to position ourselves or find ourselves in positions where we're starting to get pressure or we're starting to get persecution or we're starting to get tension, right, and there's a little bit of this push of like, you know, what? well, here's the deal. Let's try this one more time. Let's make sure you're, you're doing things the right way, doing things our way. There's that point to say, you know what, I'm sorry, you don't understand. I serve one God and I serve one king. Nobody, nothing, no system stands in front of that. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to, you know, cover my bases. I'm just going to let you know right now that this is the God I serve and I serve no other. And it's important to understand and I really, you know, this is something that I'm really trying to learn and apply in my own life, okay? These guys are not taking this stand for their own personal rights. They're not taking their stand for their own personal rights. They're taking a stand for the integrity of the Lord. Right? Now, here's, and, I, and I'm just, you know, this is, a, this is a really delicate balance, especially in our current cultural context, okay? And, and so I don't, I'm not denying that. But right now, there's a lot of pressure in different sectors of society, uh, different groups, okay? Uh, but what's happening uh, that concerns me a little bit is Christians are starting to really stand up, and that's great. But I'm having a hard time discerning sometimes if we're standing up for the gospel or if we're standing up for our own freedoms. Now, I'm not saying don't stand for freedoms. Don't misunderstand me, because we've been given freedom as a gift, and we have a responsibility to be good stewards of the gift that the Lord gives us, right? But I notice some people who are getting really worried about, like, you know, bad times are coming, and, and they're coming after us, right? And we're splitting everybody into camps, and who's on which side, and who's the good guy, and who's the bad guy, and all these things. And that's, that's all. I'm not saying that's illegitimate, right? But 
I'll be honest, Christians start talking about persecution like it's coming down the pike, and I think it may very well be. And that really doesn't bother me, right? It really doesn't bother me. Persecution is like the greatest spreader of the gospel in world history. Persecution is like asking for revival, right? It, it, I mean, persecution does fantastic things for the church. What I don't want to have happen is persecution because we're obnoxious, right? Um, I think it, it was Keith Green who said, you know, the Bible says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. It does not say, blessed are you when you are obnoxious for my sake. And it's an, it's an important distinction, right? I'm not, saying that, I'm not saying freedom isn't significant. I'm not saying people shouldn't have a clear distinction on where they stand on a lot of cultural issues, right? There's a lot of questions right now about race and about gender and about vaccines and about abortion, right? Those are important questions, right? Do you think the Bible has something to say about whether or not murdering a child in its mother's womb is significant? Yes, the Bible has something to say about that. Do you think the Bible has something to say about a culture that tells children they can, they can mutilate themselves for the sake of affirming them? Right? I think the Bible has something to say about that. But in the midst of that, we've got to always go back to the root. We can't just be Christians who are fighting surface issues because surface issues will always change. Right? You can never fight the surface issue. If we're going to establish, here's where we stand then we have to establish we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand on the fact that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. We stand on the fact that that God came to earth and died and rose again to deliver us from our sins. We stand on the fact that his Holy Spirit indwells us so that we can have the power to live a victorious Christian life. We stand on the fact that he has established his church, that he will defend it, that he's in control, and that he's going to come back for his church. Right? We stand on those. We understand the core principles. From that, we can ripple out to deal with other issues because there are other issues, right? But we've always got to tie it back into the root. And so as these guys are dealing with what is a pretty blatant form of persecution from Nebuchadnezzar, right? They don't say, king, you don't understand. We have governmental rights as governors, right? We are in positions of authority and you are violating our, uh, well, they didn't have a constitution, but whatever they had, which was, you know, the king's will. You are violating the rights established in law. And we just feel the need to let you know that we will meet you in court if you threaten to kill us again. They didn't say that. They said, king, sir, you know what? Just, just save your breath. We're standing for the Lord. We kneel for no other man. We kneel for no other image. We kneel for no other system. We refuse to let your system dictate our faithfulness. And then, this is where the story gets exciting, right? If you know the story, you kind of start just, you start grinning as you read this part, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You ever seen that when somebody gets really mad? Their facial, ex facial expression alters, right? It's significant enough that whoever wrote this down remembered it, right? So I don't know who was telling the story I don't know if Daniel wrote this part and, and these guys are relating it, but they're like, dude, don't forget to write about his face, right? Because it was, it was crazy. Um, and he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And we'll, for, we're kind of running a little short on time tonight, so we're going to summarize the story a little bit. But the king has these three guys tied up and thrown into the furnace, right? 
It's so hot that the men who throw them into the furnace die. So you're talking a pretty significant amount of heat, right? And then they throw them in. Well, good, we dealt with it. We proved, we established that no God can deliver these men out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands except, you know, but, but, and again, but for the fact that Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he says, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought we threw three guys in there. And then, uh, yeah, 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 three, one, two, three, uh-huh, uh-huh. He says, yeah, there's four. And they're all walking about. These guys are tied up with ropes. We just threw them in, and now they're all walking. Isn't that kind of weird? It's a little creepy, as a matter of fact. One of them looks like he's the son of God, right? Oh, by the way, I just dared God to show up and defend these three guys. I tied them up and threw them in a furnace, and now all of a sudden it looks like the son of God is walking around with them. And they're all having, like, fellowship in a furnace, right? Nebuchadnezzar dared the Lord to do something, and the Lord showed up. There were still consequences to Nebuchadnezzar's actions. He lost some of his best soldiers. He had his guards throw these men in, and those men died, right? But Nebuchadnezzar tells him to come out, and it says, uh, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and all the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. That is what happens sometimes when you dare God to do something. Right? Now notice these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not try and put God in a box. They didn't say, they didn't claim it. They didn't say, you know, we, we believe that God is going to deliver us, right? We're standing that God always delivers. God always wants to heal. God is always coming through in the way we expect it, right? They didn't have any southern draws back then. So they didn't do it like that. But as these guys are just living life, they're refusing to compromise. They're staying focused on the root issue, which is, is who God says he is. They're living as if God is real and as if that should have a real impact on their lives. And God does something profound in their lives. And even, you know, it's a subtle detail that we can almost miss because the miracle itself is so profound. But in an even equally or more amazing way, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded. And he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant to put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their body so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of God. Now, interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't become a full-fledged believer right here, okay? He doesn't fully kneel to who the Lord says he is. But his respect for the Lord goes up immensely, right? He says, tell you what, there's something about that God, right? And if, you, if you're disrespectful, we're going to rip you apart, so, which, you know, isn't really fully capturing the heart of God. So he's not, like, fully on board. But he's growing, And these guys, by their faithfulness, by their refusal to let their circumstances dictate their actions, they got a chance to plant an incredible seed of opportunity in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He didn't accept it right then. But chapter 4, which we're not going to read tonight, chapter 4 is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar in first person. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, uh, one of the most famous kings in all of world history, wrote a chapter of the Bible. And he said, um, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And he then proceeds to tell the story of how the Lord really humbled his pride and brought him to a full awareness of who the Lord was. And at the very end of chapter 4, in verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I believe fully that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven right now, having fellowship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. Right? And Nebuchadnezzar had to make his own response to the Lord. He had to respond to the Lord's invitation. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by their faithfulness, did not save Nebuchadnezzar. But by their faithfulness, the Lord opened a door in his heart and planted a seed that the Lord then brought to maturity. Right? So when we can recognize the same parallels in our lives, when we can stand in these moments of, I can't, I can't compromise right now. I cannot sell out my convictions right now. I cannot stand down. I cannot stay quiet. When we stand in those moments, right, we may arouse the wrath of the world. People may get so mad that their face alters, right? But the Lord will use it. And the Lord can do incredible things through that. And so just as we're kind of wrapping up and thinking about it, you know, we're talking about standing in a lot of ways. It's kind of, it was really the action that triggered everything, okay? These guys, the king said, you all kneel and worship. Somebody came to the king and said, hey, by the way, uh, those three dudes didn't kneel. So we're talking about standing. And if you flip over to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, Paul gives us a little mini thought on standing. Uh, and after, in, in the book of Ephesians, in the, whole, uh, the whole first half, he's all talking about, you know, what God has done. And then the whole second half, he's talking about how we walk in response to that, okay? Um, so chapter 6 is really the finale. In chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally. So like the finale of the finale of how we respond to what God has done. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Paul says, finally, right? Paul says, I've covered, you know, how you respond to the grace of God, how you should be an imitator of Christ. I've talked about how this should impact your marriages, how this should impact your employment, how this should impact every aspect of your life. So finally, to wrap up in conclusion, stand. Stand firm. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the big picture. He says, don't forget, you're standing. You're in warfare, right? We're in warfare as Christians, that's our privilege. That's our responsibility. We're born to war, okay? But he says, keep your eye on what we're talking about here. Uh, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, 
right? We said there are circumstances in life and there are lots of movers and shakers and there's lots of things happening and those things are important, but we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against powers and principalities and forces of darkness, right? So it's not about what happens with, you know, the physical stuff on earth. There's, there's, I'm not saying there's no value to it. We're physical beings. God created us to inhabit a physical reality. That's important, but that's not the whole picture. And we can't lose sight of that. So what do we do? We stand, right? And we stand firm. And therefore, we stand firm. He tells us this three or four times. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Okay, so we're just going to go through these real fast. Okay, it's the armor of God, right? It's a familiar passage. But if we're looking at applying what Daniel and his friends lived out in our world today, Let's look at this, right? What do we do? We stand firm. When you're tired of, st- when you're tired of standing, what do you do? You stand. He didn't say you've got to conquer the hill all by yourself. You just got to stand, right? The Lord's fully capable of taking care of the victory in his own strength. He does not need you, but he's invited you to stand, okay? So you stand. You gird your loins with truth. You put on a belt of truth. If you get a bad belt, everything else gets really awkward really fast. You start with the truth, okay? You tie everything together with the truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. All your defense comes from righteousness. Oh, by the way, whose righteousness is it? Is it ours? I don't think so. Whose righteousness do we put on biblically, right? It's Jesus Christ's righteousness. So you better be holding everything together with the truth of who God is. You better recognize that your only shot at not getting shot is Christ's righteousness, okay? You shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel peace, wherever you're standing, wherever you're walking, wherever you're going, you've got the gospel with you right there. You know the good news of salvation and how it impacts us. In addition to all, you take it the shield of faith. Faith is not just confidence in God. It's enough confidence to obey, right? That's why we can have faith the size of a mustard seed. It's just enough to say, you know what? I kind of think this is crazy and I just might die but what the heck, I'll die obeying. That's faith. That's the kind of faith that moves mountains. And so if you want to, you know, really be able to get your, get your head up and start moving and start advancing, you better have some faith. And then, um, addition to all, with which, with that faith, you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and you take the helmet of salvation. If you want to keep your head in the game, you better be saved, right? Make sure you understand salvation. Make sure you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's really interesting that the Spirit, you know, it's the Spirit and the Word. That's our offense, right? He didn't say you got to run. He didn't say you got to conquer. You got to, he didn't, he just said, you know, hey, you just stand. And by the way, the Lord will just drop this little offensive weapon in your hand that's called the Spirit and the Word of God, right? If you get that, it's going to be okay, right? At that point, it doesn't matter what Nebuchadnezzar or our modern-day Nebuchadnezzars do. It doesn't matter. If the Lord delivers us from the furnace, that's fantastic. If the Lord chooses not to, it doesn't have to impact our conduct, right? And so, it's looking at Daniel. We're looking at all these crazy things going on, all these crazy circumstances. And all we have to do is just stand, right? And in some ways, that can feel like such a monumental task, 
right? Because we can look at all the things pressing in and all the burdens of the world and all the sin and all the darkness. And it's, you know, it, it's increasing and, we, and you can almost just feel it growing, right? All you got to do is stand, right? I mean, you think about it. If you get your feet just a little bit apart and you've got good shoes on, and you've got a good shield, you can stand for a really long time, right? You don't have to run. You just got to stand. We just got to let the sword of the Spirit do the work for us. We just got to be ready. And so we don't look at Daniel and say, wow, here's all this list of things that I have to do. We say, wow, God is fully capable. God is fully in control. God is fully in charge of every situation and every circumstance. And so I don't have to let a circumstance dictate my response. I can just be faithful. I can just serve the Lord and follow him. I can walk one step at a time when he calls me to walk. When he calls me to stand, I stand. Right? And when the king says, hey, bow, bow or die, we say, I guess it's die. Right? Hey, you know, the Lord might, might want to kind of blow your mind with who he is. But, but I'm just standing. Right? I don't kneel. I stand. Right? We get that privilege. And that is the great and glorious privilege of Christianity. That's what we've been invited to. That's what we've been called to. That's what we've been created for. So, this week, for each one of us collectively, right, as we're reading the Word, as we're interacting with the world, as we're just doing day-to-day life, stand. Remind yourself of the armor of God. Remind yourself of whose righteousness it is, whose truth it is, right, whose salvation it is. It's none of ours. It's the armor of God. It's not the armor of man. We just get to stand, right? So, Lord, I do pray for each one of us that we would stand, that we would be faithful men and women, that we would respond to your word, that we would walk in obedience. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, work through us. God, give us just fellowship with you. We don't want to be driven or shaken by the things of this world. We don't want to lose our focus. I pray that that you would just help us to remember who you are. I pray that we would remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that that truth would override all of our circumstances, override all of our situations and our scenarios, all of our problems and our stresses. God, I pray that you would be first and foremost in our lives, that you would have the glory that you would have the preeminence, that everything we do would flow out of our relationship with you. So I pray that you would have your way with us, God. Just be glorified in our midst. Exalt yourself in our presence. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Lead us by your word. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.